Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Welcome to episode 27 of Killer Hangover. I'm Bettina. And I'm Beth. And today we are going to cover a true crime that has uh, spanned a few states. So you did have a choice as to where you were going to pull your paranormal from. Yes. And from the list of states you gave me, I chose the state of Michigan. All right. And my husband actually has some family out in Michigan. Was really bummed because I was recommended a brewery, but I couldn't get my hands on that. So I found another brewery, though, that had some great reviews online. And shout out to Lucas Liquors Liquor Store in Kansas City. Again. Yes. They ordered me some Founders Brewing Company beer. And they gave me a list of the different beers they could grab. And I chose an IPA. Which, because I love IPAs and you're just pursing your lips at me. The name of the beer is called All Day IPA. That rhymes. (laughs) So this is Founders Brewing Company's All Day IPA. Founders Brewing Company, actually, it looks like they have two tap rooms. They have one in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and another in Detroit, Michigan. So if you're in the area, you should check them out. We will be sampling the... All day IPA. I know I keep saying it, but it's so fun. Jeez. All right, let's open this can. What are these cars called, Mom? That's on the can? A station <laughs> wagon with a canoe on it. Is that what it is? There's like a station wagon on here with a canoe. It looks like they're going to go enjoy a summer day on the lake. All right, let's pour these into our awesome killer hangover glasses. All right. Cheers. Cheers. Gosh, I love IPAs. It's super hoppy. Yeah, me not so much. <clears throat> it's very hoppy. Mm-hmm. And very after tasty. <laughs> it's very beery. <laughs> it's it's very beery. <laughs> We need to make glasses that say Killer Hangover, the podcast on it, and then have very beery on, <laughs> on the glass. <sighs> Alrighty, well, I'm going to sit back and really enjoy this. This is very tasty. While you uh, tell me a true crime story, Mom. All right, I'm going to tell you about Henry Lee Lucas. <gasps> like Lucas Liquor's liquor store. Say that three times really fast. <laughs> All right. Um, You've probably heard of him. I think I've mentioned him. Uh, Netflix had The Confession Killer 
Okay, a, yes. A documentary, yes, yes, yes. and that was about Henry Lee Lucas. Well, you told me not to watch it. Not to watch it, and that I had watched it and really became kind of interested in this guy. Yeah, you wanted your story to be new for me. There you go. Not to not watch it because it was bad by any means. And now you can go back and watch it because I think it's still on. So Henry Lee Lucas, who was a prolific serial killer, or was he a pathological liar? Both. We'll see. (laughs) Well, to begin with, he claimed to... Okay, now this is... As you know, when we're doing our research, we go to one site and then we back it up by going to several other sites. Yes. Okay. So this, what I'm going to say here, was only on one site, but I thought it was so, kind of goes with the story that I kept it. So I don't know whether this part is true. I'm just telling you that right now. But it's interesting. He claimed to have killed 3,000 people. 3,000 people? To have supplied the poison used in the mass suicide of the People's Temple in Jonestown. What, he made the Kool-Aid? He, he supplied. The, yeah, I guess he... Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. He claimed to have killed not only in the U.S., but also in Japan. Oh, and according to this one reference, he also killed Jimmy Hoffa. Okay. <laughs> Tooting his own horn there, just so, a little bit. A bit far-fetched, we say. But over the span of a year and a half, he had the Lucas Task Force, led by the Texas Rangers, eating out of his hands, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Actually, they were feeding him very well. As he confessed to unsolved murders, he was flown by authorities across state line. He stayed in hotels, ate very well, drank strawberry milkshakes, His favorite. My favorite. And was given cartons of cigarettes. I mean, this dude had a cup of coffee in one hand and a cigarette in the other. Most every shot that he was in. Why was he treated so nicely? Well, he confessed to crimes and they were treating him. Well, I'll explain. Hopefully, I will explain that (laughs) to come. (laughs) I hope so, too. (laughs) As he confessed to these crimes and in some instances described the victims and their deaths, he became more and more comfortable with talking to different authorities. Okay. But eventually he was put to the test by two detectives from Dallas because they just were, this is, this is unreal. You know, everyone was solving cold cases. Yeah. By talking to him. Oh yeah, I did that one. Oh yeah, I did that one. So they were crossing him off the books. I see. Okay. So these two detectives from Dallas actually made up some crimes. Oh, smart. Made up the crime, made up the victim. Then went to talk to him like all the other people, you know, had been doing to see whether he would confess to them. Okay. And he did. Ooh. He described. Gotcha. He described the murder scene. He described the victim. He described everything that did not happen liar (laughs) the texas attorney general's office ordered that his whereabouts on the dates and places of the murders be checked out duh based on his work records prison stays tickets etc most claims were found to be false Hmm. there was even one where lucas claimed to have killed a virginia school teacher who turned out to be alive what At one point, the Dallas Times got involved 
and figured out. Now, this this guy was big. I mean, it was a year and a half of him claiming to all these crimes. So people had heard of him all over the United well, States. Well, and I'm sure he's getting I'm sure he's getting so much attention for He's that. getting a ton of attention. And like I said, being treated very well. Yeah, which is just so weird to me. The Dallas Times got involved and figured out that in order for the timeline of his supposed crimes to have worked, Lucas would have had to travel 11,000 miles in his 13-year-old station wagon. Whoa. <laughs> Why does this always happen to us? I don't know. But it didn't have a canoe on it. <laughs> okay. That's weird. In just a month. That is more than four times the width of the United States in just a month. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm still just blown away about the station wagon thing. Okay. <laughs> all day IPA. Okay. That all being said, Henry Lee Lucas was a killer. He was a killer with, once again, a very sad childhood. And I hate to always reference that, but I think in a lot of cases it does make the people who they are. No, I totally, like we discussed in our Patreon episode, it's interesting to see where these people come from and how they get to that point. Right. And that's not to say that everybody raised with a bad childhood can't come forth and be better. No, I understand that. But But sometimes looking back at these individuals, you can see the progression, I Mm -hmm. guess. So he was born on August 23rd, 1936 in Blacksburg, Virginia. He was the youngest of nine children. Holy cow. Raised by alcoholic parents. His father was crippled in a railroad accident where he lost both of his legs. Oh my gosh. So he made money for the family by making moonshine and by selling pencils. (laughs) Did he make pencils? Um, No, I think he just kind of was, you know, a guy on the street selling pencils. That is so weird to me. It's 1936. I mean, it's, it's, you know. Okay. I just wasn't expecting you to say moonshine and pencils. (laughs) (laughs) Well, going back to the moonshine, he drank a lot of it himself. I assumed so, yes. So he actually died of hypothermia uh, when Henry was 10 years old. He had gone down outside in the winter in his wheelchair and gotten lost. He was very drunk. Oh, wow. And his How tragic. wife, who was just not a very nice person, she was very abusive to Henry's father as well as Henry. Mm. But back to his father, he couldn't find his way home and he died that night. Oh, wow. Of hypothermia. Henry's mother, Viola, was not only an alcoholic, but very abusive, as I said, and she was also a prostitute, often making Henry watch as she had sex in the one-room log cabin where they all lived. Now, remember, I said nine children. Oh, my God. My stomach just, like, churned. According to Henry, when he was eight years old, Viola hit him on the head with a wooden plank so hard that he was in a coma for three days. There's that head injury. Now, after his death, when Mm -hmm. they did the autopsy and they checked, they did see that there was a severe injury in the frontal lobe. Now, I don't have the numbers in front of me and I can't, so I can't give you those, but I do know that a lot of serial killers have had head injuries. That's crazy. Oh, he definitely, definitely did. She dressed him in girls' clothes 
for many years. Why? Just because nine kids just put on clothes and go? No, or she was just to... abusive. Wow. She was just, uh, I'm not going to use the B word, but she was that. <laughs> Female dog. Got it. <laughs> when he was 10 years old, his eye was injured in a fight with his brother. The injury was ignored by Viola for days until his eye became so infected that he couldn't see and so that she had to take him into the doctor. It turned out that it couldn't be healed and so it was removed and he for the rest of his life had a glass eye what yeah this is the oh. most random story <laughs> by this time henry now we're talking 10 11 12 years old he had been drinking so much because he started drinking when his father was making the moonshine okay so he started drinking at a very young age so when he was i don't know 11 12 13 he could have been considered an alcoholic. Again, now this is, is so sad. All according to Henry. When he was 15, he had his first sexual experience with a girl he abducted, beat, and raped. But he's a liar, so. Right. And maybe you can't answer this, but did any of his other siblings turn out like he did? I think he did some of, well, I'm going to say um, at 16 years old in 1952, he and his, and two of his brothers were arrested for burglary. Oh, you said that very nicely. I got to say it one more time, so don't. <laughs> oh. oh, man, that was that was clear to the point. I'm so proud of you. He spent a year at a school for juvenile delinquents, which actually was a much better living arrangement. Oh, I'm sure. That I'm sure he had food. He had he ever had. beat. He wasn't. Um, he had a bed to sleep in. He had running water. Yeah. He had electricity. Golly. And like you said, food, because the kids would often starve. Mm. In 1956, he was sentenced to six more years for a dozen counts of burglary, but was released in 1959. So he never served his full terms. I know. I don't have to say it anymore either. <laughs> Very proud of you. I mean, that was just perfect. So when he was released from prison in 59, he wanted to just get away from everything. So sure. he moved to where his sister was living in Tecumseh, Michigan. And he actually moved in with her. But guess who followed him? Oh, no. Viola, his mother. And the whole time there, she was pestering him to come move back home to take care of her. There's no one taking care of me. It's your job to do it. You have to come home and take care of me. Why would it be his job to? I have no idea, but they fought constantly. And one day, I guess she became rather physically violent with him. Mm-hmm. And so he just picked up a knife. They were in the kitchen. He picked up a knife and stabbed her in the neck. I don't know what you're looking for for me. Like, <laughs> I mean, you, you're almost, yeah, okay. She sounds terrible, but obviously that's not the right thing to do, Mr. Glass Eye. So she fell to the floor, bleeding out, and he ran away. <laughs> <laughs> well, his sister came home, found the mother on the floor, Rushed her to the hospital because she was still alive. Oh, my God. This woman's like a cat. Rushed her to the hospital where she died of a heart attack. What? Which was caused by the stabbing. Okay. Henry was found guilty of second-degree murder and sentenced to 20 to 40 years in prison. 
Holy cow. Now, while in prison, he attempted suicide twice. Mm. So then he was moved to the Iona State Mental Hospital. He was paroled in 1970 after serving only 10 years. Oh, my god! Remember, he was sentenced 20 to 40 years. Yes. But he only served 10. For good behavior or? No, I think actually it was because of overcrowding. Oh my gosh, he just got lucky. Shortly after being paroled, Lucas was once again arrested, this time for trying to kidnap three young girls. Oh my gosh. He was sentenced to three years. That's, that's it. When he was released for this stint, he moved to Pennsylvania and worked on a mushroom farm. In 1975, he married Betty Crawford. The Betty Crocker, sorry. Crawford. I heard it. <laughs> the widow of a cousin. But was soon kicked out of that household because she accused him of molesting her two daughters. Oh my God, I hope that wasn't true. It might have been. He really liked young girls. Now Henry has no place to go. So he becomes a drifter, supporting himself by doing odd jobs. According to him, this is when he began raping and killing women as he traveled on the highways. In 1976, at a soup kitchen in Jacksonville, Florida, so he's worked himself down south now, Wow. he met Otis Toole. And remember that name because you will hear it next week. Yes. <laughs> the two became inseparable. Some accounts, well, most accounts, have them in a homosexual relationship. If they were or weren't, I, I think they felt a lot for each other because they were both two lost souls. Yeah. And they finally found love and acceptance in each other. Okay. So whether it was a homosexual relationship or not, I think it was a very close relationship. Okay. But Lucas was not only seeing Tool, Otis Tool. That's why I'm kind of like, well, was it or wasn't it? He also fell in love with Tool's niece, who happened to live with Tool. Oh, no. Her name was Frida Becky Powell, who, by the way, was... 11 or 12 years old. Oh, my gosh. And um, she was described as being slightly mentally challenged. Not cool. Not cool at all. Lucas and Tool worked at a roofing company from 1979 to 1981, and during which time Lucas claimed to have committed hundreds of murders. Jeez. He claimed that he and Tool killed 108 people together. Lucas said that Tool's M.O., was to kill his victims, barbecue, and eat them. What? Now, this was not verified at all. And I'll go more into that when I tell you about Tool. But Lucas stated that he did not join Tool in this ritual as he did not like barbecue sauce. No! <laughs> oh, well then, no. That could never be. I had to keep that in there. <laughs> I only saw that in one source, but it was too, too funny. That is so just wrong. In 1981, Lucas, Toole, and Becky, who was now Lucas's girlfriend, gross, moved to Stonebird, Texas. It didn't take long for Becky to become homesick and to keep her happy. Lucas and she ran away, leaving Toole behind. They didn't make it to Florida before needing money. So Lucas got a job in Texas doing odd jobs for 80-year-old Katie Rich, or Kate Rich. This job didn't last long because Lucas was found cashing checks with Kate's name on him. Oh my gosh. 
and they really had it pretty good working for this older woman but of course he had to ruin that he just that. cannot yeah he has to the couple moved down and found a home at the house of prayer a pentecostal like a community right right they claimed to be a married couple and the couple was was offered a shack to live in and lucas worked as a roofer i don't know what happened between becky and lucas at this time maybe becky was pushing too hard to get back to florida how old is she now at this time 15 my gosh Uh, whatever it was on august 24th 1982 lucas drove with becky to a field in denton texas killed her and dismembered her body scattering the body all around the field This was the only murder that he later said he truly regretted because he did really love Becky and she really, she was the only person that ever really loved him. So three weeks later, he killed Kate Rich, stuffed her body in a drainage pipe. Um, Several reports said that he would return several times to have sex with the body. He returned to living and working in the house of prayer. He soon learned that he was a suspect in Kate's disappearance. Scared of being discovered, he moved the body to the house of prayer and incinerated it in a stove. It's a regular stove. Yeah. A year later, he was charged with Kate's and Becky's murder. Bone fragments. A whole year, though. Bone fragments belonging to Kate were found in a stove at the compound, and skeletal remains matching the sex and age of Becky were found in the field where Lucas claims to have killed her. Hmm. Although, no positive identity has ever been made. Oh, could it, it could just be another one of his stories. Yeah, but... No, I don't think he'd lie about that. He took the police there. Okay. That was one where he actually okay. took the police to, and it totally matched his story. Okay, now enter the Texas Rangers. Okay. So Lucas confessed to the two killings after only four days in jail. And what they did, kind of funny, um, Lucas loved to talk. And it was all about him and whatever. And finally they decided, you know what? We're not even going to talk to him. We're not going to give him cigarettes. We're not going to do anything. He's just going to be locked up. As he should have been. We'll give him food. But no one's allowed to talk to him. It took four days. <laughs> and he finally just confessed to the killings and just spit everything out. He couldn't take it. Oh, my gosh. So in court, after he was convicted of the murders of those two women, right? Lucas said out loud to the judge, and I did see this court, the snippet of the court, and it was so funny because <laughs> he says, well, judge, what are we going to do about the other hundred women I killed? This was after he was convicted. What? So he's convicted of the two murders. And then he says that to the judge. Oh, my God. It was hilarious. The judge's face just went. What did the judge say? What the hell is he talking (laughs) to me? His whole face just blanched. I mean, it turned white and the court erupted. (gasps) I mean, it was it was total chaos. (laughs) jeez this guy is a moron though so then the lucas task force was formed to facilitate these claims lucas Mm. was moved to williamson county texas where sheriff boutwell a texas ranger ran the task force lucas claimed he killed using every method except for poison (laughs) 
<laughs> Why not poison though? Is there a reason he didn't do poison? No. <laughs> <laughs> I really don't know because he was lying anyway. Yeah, that's true. Some depicted him as making Manson look like Tom Sawyer. <laughs> oh my god. It obviously wasn't long before Lucas achieved a celebrity status. I mean, he would, like I said, he was known all over. I'm sure. His name was known all over the U.S. as well as the world. Enter a Japanese film crew that came to visit no. Lucas while he was no. in Texas. He had actually become quite popular in Japan. I don't understand how murderers can become so popular. I, okay. I don't get it either, but... They brought... As we sit here on a podcast and talk about <laughs> them. <laughs> anyway. Uh, now this was, uh, this was another funny moment when he said, Oh, yeah, I killed some of your people too. And the Japanese guy, you know, goes, no, in no. Japan? And he goes, oh, sure. And they asked him, well, how did you get there? And he said, I drove there. <laughs> <laughs> Now remember, he only had a fourth grade education. What a moron. So he wasn't. So maybe there was a canoe on his station wagon. (laughs) (laughs) He canoed to Japan. (laughs) Yeah, makes sense. I have to say that Sheriff Boutwell did treat Lucas like he'd never been treated before. Which is, you know, I mean, it's kind of sad. He was treated with kindness and with respect. Which is something he had never had before. Sure, but did he deserve it? He killed people. I I know, but even when he was a kid, you know? Well, oh. when he's a kid, that's different. I understand that. I don't that. know. No excuse, I know. But Lucas would walk into the interview room with no handcuffs. Like I said, holding a cup of coffee and a cigarette. He called the interview room his office and would be on the phone with law enforcement you know, from other parts of the country, as if he was a part of the team. Well-known author Hugh Ainsworth, who had just spent months interviewing and then writing a book on Ted Bundy. Uh, The book is called The Only Witness. So now he joined into the task force. Okay. And he was able to kind of get one-on-one with Lucas. And it was really interesting because when he and Lucas were alone in the room, Lucas told him, I didn't really kill all them people. He said that to him? He yep. finally admitted it? Only to him. Only. But then so, he turned around, and as soon as the sheriff and un- other investigators showed up, Lucas began to close cases again. That's, oh my gosh. When asked why he t- was talking so freely about the killings, he said that, well, Jesus Christ told him he needed to do this for the victim's families. And that Jesus said he would help him recall all his crimes. Oh, wow. So he was interviewed for over 3,000 homicides in over 40 states. Holy moly. Office- and he was claiming all of them? Um, or just like most of them? The majority. Yes. Officers would come to Williamson County Jail to interview Lucas, bringing with them meals, milkshakes, and cigarettes. And again, treating him with a lot of respect. Nearly 200 cold cases were closed as Lucas admitted to being the murderer. Lucas would look at photos and, oh, boom, remember how, when, and where the crime was committed and admit to the killing. The officer would thank Lucas for clearing the case and shake his hand and move on. And the next officer would come up. 
So they were like almost, there were days where people were standing in line and would be given 20 minutes to talk to Lucas. I just don't understand at any point. I mean, I know you mentioned the two guys that came in with the fake. This was going on for far too long. Are these people really that stupid to think that he really did all of these murders? Again, these are cold cases. I know. And they're they're just, wanting to close them. They really want to close them. I get it. But um, and it, to what? Like, but think about it those was stupid. families. It's it, just it was false. Seriously. I mean, to me, it was just stupid. In 1985, Hugh Ainsworth and Jim Henderson worked for the Dallas Times, and they concluded a 15-month investigation which proved that there was no way Lucas was responsible for many of the murders he was confessing to. They looked at work records, traffic tickets, signed checks, insurance forms, and interviewed Lucas's past employers and landlords. And it came down to Lucas could not be in two blazes at mm. the same time. Some of them a hundreds of miles apart. A hundreds? A hundreds. <laughs> it seems that law enforcement, perhaps unknowingly, I'm sure unknowingly, would give Lucas pertinent information. And with this information, he closed their cases. I don't know what they were thinking. So I can't say what they were thinking. But they would show him the crime scene pictures and he pieced it together yeah you know i mean he was stupid but he wasn't stupid if you know what i mean sure (laughs) (laughs) there were varying ideas as to why lucas admitted to the killing so you know what why did this why one was that he was trying to commit legal suicide meaning he wanted the death penalty so that he could be in heaven with becky well, that's what I was just going to ask. So, yeah, he's saying that he did all these things. So, was this just getting tacked on to his sentencing? Or were they just closing the cases? Was he going to go to trial for any of these? I mean, how was that I mean, eventually, happening? I think they he would. But, you know, right now, they were just closing cases. They didn't want to bring him to court yet because he kept closing these cases. It's just crazy to me. The other idea, and I think, I don't know, just watching the documentary... This is the one I'm kind of thinking is more valid. Is that he wanted to please anybody and everybody he was with. Yeah, that kind of makes sense. He wanted to be liked and he wanted friends. And he felt like this was his moment to shine, you know. And he was really good at figuring out what somebody wanted to hear. I think because he wanted so badly to be accepted Mm -hmm. and to be liked, he would watch the person and if he answered one way to a question, he kind of could see that wasn't quite the right answer. So then he'd backtrack and he'd go another route. So here's my question. If he was such a people pleaser and why couldn't he have been a good person outside in the real world then and be a people pleaser that way I, in a more positive way? I think everything was stacked against this guy. Then he said this a quote from him. Investigators would show me pictures and describe crimes. And all I had to do was say, yes, I did it. Then he said, I never took police to locations. They took me there. Oh, my gosh. I mean, it was it was crazy. But there was one like with the Japanese journalist that came over. Yeah. I took him to a crime scene where a young lady had been killed and her boyfriend had also been killed. And it was like it was miles apart. Okay. And he described what they did to the boy and then 
we took the girl through her in the back of the car and drove drove 15 or 16 miles however many miles it was and raped her and killed her and the journalist would look at the sheriff and he goes yeah it was um he had it right it was it was 16 miles though so it was one mile more Mm -hmm. than what he had said but he described everything perfectly so do you think some of these cases he did do he did not do that case they found the murderer for that case what the heck i think he had been fed uh unintentionally been somehow but i think he had been fed that was the only way he did not do that murder wow so when all was said was and done, Lucas was convicted of 11 murders. But when looking at the evidence, there was really only proof that he killed three women. His mother, mm-hmm. 15-year-old Becky, mm-hmm. and Kate Rich. Interestingly enough, he received a death sentence for the 1979 murder of an unidentified woman known only by the clothes she had on, which was just a pair of orange socks. Oh, so she was found in 1979. Finally, last year in 2019, she was identified as Deborah Jackson, 23-year-old. Oh my gosh, it took that long. Took that long. However, this was one murder that even though he admitted to doing it, there was no way he could have carried it out. Work records show that he was working as a roofer in Jacksonville, Florida at the time of the murder. So it was hundreds of miles away. For some reason, Lucas suddenly started taking everything back. (laughs) Nope, nope, didn't do it, didn't do it. I'm not a serial killer. I only killed three people. So he even admitted then finally to just three. Just three. So in 1998, six days before his execution date, the Texas governor, who was George W. Bush, commuted Lucas's sentence to life because the case lacked certainty. Hmm. Ken Anderson, the district attorney who prosecuted Lucas, stated that he thinks Lucas actually killed uh, between 3 or 12 people. What is really sad, though, many of the cases the investigators closed with Lucas's name have not been reopened. So they still just have Lucas's name on that? Yep. That is Even though the families know that Lucas did not kill their loved one. That's terribly sad. The wild and crazy story of Henry Lee Lucas. I mean, it was just like this crazy ride. <laughs> Hold on, Seriously, and here we go. Just a bunch of random facts, too. Pencils and glass eyes. <laughs> You're still stuck on the pencils. And, and station wagons and canoeing to Japan. I mean, my <laughs> gosh. There's the title for the episode right there. No, oh, crazy. Craziness. But that um, watch that documentary. If no, you, now I definitely will. If it's still on Netflix, it's great. It What's is. it called again? The Confession Killer. Cool. Okay. Henry Lee Lucas. So what do you have for me? All right. Well, I don't have that much randomness in mind. <laughs> I'm going to be sharing about the old mill in Dundee, Michigan. So the history of this old mill is pretty neat. But the hauntings that happen there are just incredible. I interviewed local paranormal group Spirit World Paranormal Investigations. Oh, cool. SWPI about this location. They investigate it pretty regularly and they knew a lot about the old mill. It was really fascinating to hear their stories. Awesome. How did you get a hold of them? 
I had actually reached out to the old mill. Uh, they hold paranormal investigations there. Okay. And so I had just reached out for more information and asked if they wanted to chat with me for the podcast. And then I got a message on Facebook and we all just started chatting. Oh, that is so awesome. Yeah. So the mill sits on the River Raisin Dam. And I hope I'm saying that correctly. I'm pretty sure it's Raisin. <laughs> R-A-I-S-I-N. Yeah. Yeah, okay. I would think. I... Yeah, okay. Uh, the building was first constructed in 1828 and originally served as a grist mill. Throughout its lifetime, it has switched owners as well as its purpose. It had produced buckwheat flour and feed grain. It had worked as a hydroelectric plant, a, f- a fabric factory, and during the Depression, the local economy did all right when Henry Ford took over the mill, using it as a factory for himself and his business. So the Henry Ford? The Henry Ford. Oh, okay. He actually came in, stripped the building down to its original timber, and constructed a brand new factory in 1935. He added on to the building as well, adding a limestone structure, which he held generators and steam boilers. The Ford Dundee Mill continued to operate as a water-powered plant through World War II and post-war periods. Then, after Ford died in 1954, the factory was sold and worked as a paper mill to produce gasket material. And then, in 1970, the old mill was sold to the village of Dundee for one dollar. <laughs> Wanted to get rid of that. So. <laughs> the building sat abandoned for quite some time until 1981, when a community of volunteers named the Old Mill Restoration Committee worked very hard on the building and turned it into a museum, which is what it is today. The museum has some awesome artifacts from the area and the state's history. It offers conference rooms, event spaces, and a wedding chapel room in the banquet hall. The museum also offers ghost hunts, private and public. And when you buy tickets to investigate, you get a tour of the museum and the building. You hear the history of the building and past paranormal experiences. And then after that, you're sent off on your own By to yourself? investigate at your own pace, which I think is so freaking cool. <laughs> so talking to the ghost investigators from the SWPI group, guys, thank you so much. That was so much fun chatting with you. I got a lot of fun stories from the group. I was in this group chat with like eight of them, I think. One of the first questions I asked was, if there were any known or like particular spirits that they encountered every time they investigated. Mm-hmm. Adam, who is an investigator as well as the group's medium, his gift is just incredible. He named a quote resident spirit in the basement. They named Marie. He said that she likes to cling to his left arm when he is down there. He also said that in the banquet hall, there are three regular spirits, possibly more party spirits like Jack from Minnesota. (laughs) (laughs) Kids have been seen in the old mill on several occasions as well. Adam said that there were about three to five kids seen or heard around at a time. Oh, wow. At one Mm -hmm. time? At one time, yep. The children are known to play games with the investigators and many of the guests that come to investigate. The children may be there because of the antiques in the museum. The middle floor of the museum has many old school house items and children's toys and dolls. Oh my goodness, that makes total sense. 
there have been no known deaths at the old mill or tragic accidents or anything like that that would bring upon the hauntings. There are a lot of other contributing factors, though. The building is filled with antiques. Mm -hmm. So maybe like the children are attached to the school items or something like that. The ever-flowing water can increase activity. The mill is on that Raisin Dam. I hope I'm saying that correctly. And at one point, water actually ran under the building as well. Mm -hmm. The addition that Henry Ford added made of limestone. Limestone is said to hold energies much like a cassette would. And the limestone that Henry Ford used was mined from the riverbed right next to the building. The power that was generated from there could increase supernatural. The mill generated power for the whole village of Dundee at the time. Oh, uh, Another big influence on the spirits are the many visiting people to the ghost haunts and the museum that builds energy there. Another contributing factor may also be the land had been previously inhabited by local Native American tribes. When Adam told me this, he referenced a time when the team discovered a wet footprint in the basement. Just one wet bare foot. You can see the toes and everything. They oh. sent me the picture. Interesting. I will thank you guys again for sharing these. And I will post this to our social media because it's awesome. Quote, it was prior to our guests coming to investigate one night. We were in the basement. This footprint was about 20 something feet from any water source. So if it were faked, someone would have had to carry someone without dripping to place that single barefoot print. And why would they? <laughs> That's it's just, crazy. They do two feet. That is just so stinking cool. The group gets activities on all spectrums, audio, visual. They say it's actually been a very rich source for EVPs, which I think is just so neat. They see shadow figures, black masses, partial and full-bodied apparitions. Wow. It's a place where they say skeptics become believers. (laughs) From the stories they told me, it sounds like a place we should bring our husbands. (laughs) (laughs) They say it's as if the spirits could sense that the visitor was a skeptic, so they will prove themselves particularly to them. Oh my gosh, would that be a hoot? (laughs) Here's another fun story from Adam and Jeff. Quote, I was in the archive room by myself doing a session. Jeff was up on either the second or third floor. While I was doing my session, down the hall and around the corner is the bar that's attached to the banquet hall. There was a married couple and the husband's friend doing a session there. Now, the friend was a hardcore skeptic. On the bar, they have a fake planter with flowers on it. He was standing next to it. All of a sudden, I hear a very loud scream that I assumed was the wife. Now, I'm sitting around the corner and I'm laughing and I'm tagging my recorder that that I heard and who it was and what it was. So the couple and their friend are laughing as they walk past the archive room on their way back to the the meeting room where we take breaks in. I wrap my session up quickly and go in there to find out what happened. The skeptic saw and heard the fake plant shaking next to him. And he was the one that screamed out loud and fell (laughs) to the ground. (laughs) So then we're all laughing. And it's known that you can be skeptic at the old mill. Just be open. Because if you don't, our spirits will find a way to make you believe. We can count quite a few times when hardcore skeptic husbands or boyfriends go running out of the mill because they saw something, usually in the basement. These guys leave their ladies behind and won't ever return. (laughs) Later. (laughs) Jeff backed up the story with, 
I was clear up in the main building on the second or third floor, and I also had to tag a recording because I heard what sounded like an audible woman scream, and so did my partner who was with me. When we got back to the meeting room and I questioned the woman in that group, she said that it wasn't me. It was this guy she pointed to who looked all embarrassed. Laughter ensued. They were all joking about this on our chat. And Jeff said, one day that scream will be part of the residual hauntings of the old mill. (laughs) (laughs) Another story from Jennifer, another investigator with the group, quote, Maybe last fall, I was in the meeting room while everyone was upstairs and I heard a baby cry. At first, I thought it was someone's phone ringer. Then Nancy, she works at the mill, comes running in and says, did you hear that? I said, yes, I heard a baby crying. She said, no, I just heard a loud bang from the office. When everyone came downstairs about five minutes later, we asked if anyone had a ringtone or if anyone had been downstairs earlier, but they had all been upstairs for the tour. And so So I was joking with Jennifer. I was like, who would have a baby cry on a ringtone? (laughs) (laughs) And she's like, you never know, Beth. (laughs) I was like, yeah, that's true. (laughs) Totally true. So did they find out what it was? No, that's so cool. I love this stuff. So one last personal story from them. It was a very intriguing one. One day, the museum director asked the group to privately investigate the office of the building. It's off limits to guests. They had been having some weird occurrences in there. The director's dog, an old black lab. We all love puppy stories. The dog would never go in there. So the group was asked to check it out. Adam and Andy went in there first, and Adam said that it was a little girl hiding under the desk. Now remember, Adam is a medium. Right. Adam describes the little girl to the group, and as he's describing her, Tim recognized the description right away. A few years prior, he had been a part of a search party searching for a little girl that matched that description. He showed Adam a photo, and Adam agreed that that was the little girl he had seen hiding under the desk. The little girl had been found a few years past, just up the river from the old mill, deceased and buried in concrete. According to an ABC News article I read, her name was Navia. She was five years old. She grew up in the area. Her autopsy showed signs that she had been buried alive. No way. And from what I could gather, her killer was still unknown. Did they know she was killed for sure? Was it an accident? I'm thinking they think she was killed. This may be a little case I have to cover on our Patreon page. Yeah. Jeff said that he felt very lucky to have access to the historical site. Quote, It's a great place for any investigator or paranormal, but I would say it's an especially nice place for anyone who wants to try their first investigations as the old mill is very inviting and lighter than some of the usual fare of sites out there, such as abandoned prisons, jails, hospitals, and asylums that have histories of strife, anxiety, death, and despair. That's not to say one of our notoriously cranky resident spirits named Bob won't swear at you in an EVP <laughs> if he's not up for being social <laughs> or a visiting spirit energy with a darker personality might stop by to surprise you. Ooh. So the SWPI group hosts private and public ghost hunts at the old mill. A group can rent the mill out for the night themselves, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah I know. Oh my gosh, I'd love to. The public ghost hunts are held once, sometimes twice a month. And you can go to hauntedundymill.com 
or oldmillevents.com for more information. And I'll post that on our social media. The group gives all the proceeds from events to the old mill to keep it going. Nice. There's even a huge event called Parafest that's held once a year as a fundraiser for the old mill. Wow. This will be the event's seventh year with the date scheduled for November 14th. We should go. It would be awesome. Hopefully Corona stuff is over. I hope that they can do that for the old mill. So you can go to www.oldmillparafest.com for tickets and more information. Interesting. You know, I wonder what stories the um, uh, people who work there yeah, have. It just, it just seems got like a ton. Yeah. With it being right there on the water, and I've always heard that, that flowing water like that, and then the limestone and everything. And then you have all these antiques. Golly. You probably have just such a mixture. That's like Robert the Doll. He was in that museum with all that stuff, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And his little museum that he was in was haunted. Remember, the spirits didn't like it when he would yes. leave for Halloween. <laughs> so, yeah. Interesting. Well, we have a lot of limestone around here, you know. We do. Yeah, I wonder. (laughs) So thanks again to the SWPI group. You guys were awesome. That was so much fun. They had so many more stories. You can check them out on YouTube, and I'll post links to that on our social media. that would be great. And some of their pictures that they sent me, because there's some really neat stuff. They captured a photo of a hand and, like, the footprint. It's just, oh, it's so stinking neat wow and if anybody else is out there in a paranormal group and you want to get in touch with us we would love to share your stories if you have a place like the old mill in your city or your town that you want us to tell talk about please don't hesitate to email us or message us on facebook so we can uh, share details on your guys' cities that makes our paranormal all the more interesting to have the real life i love the personal stories yeah they're so much fun well, to email us those stories, you can email us at killerhangoverpodcast at gmail.com. And you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at killerhangoverpodcast. Next week, Mom, you are covering the true crime again. 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 <laughs> Otis Tool. Yes. Lucas's boyfriend. The one who likes barbecue. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> More on that next week. Oh, boy. Well, thank you guys so much for listening to this craziness. We appreciate you and all of your awesome reviews and ratings and oh, comments, comments and messages. comments have been great. You guys are awesome. This is, it just makes this so much more fun. It does. It does. Thank you so much. We're going a little fun little hangover community. <laughs> Cheers, mama. Love you, kid.